Uh, he's considered one of the later prophets after the reign of David and Solomon, after Israel and Judah had fallen, much like Elijah was, who we talked about last week. And uh, at this time, Israel has been reduced to really a tiny group of people living under enemy rule. And now, of course, we've mentioned this before, but I want us to really think about just the, the collapse of their nation, of the way of life, of everything they're used to. is this massive, massive event that shapes their culture. It, it shapes their writings from this time. It affects the people who are there. It affects the prophets themselves, how they saw things, how they viewed God. And in a way, when I think about this time period in Israel's history, it, to me, at least it seems similar to what really this current generation and the next generation will go through in the church. Um, and I say that because for a long time, the majority of this country, country was very Christian, and even those who weren't exactly Christian, well, a, a Christian way of thinking or living pretty much dominated most people's lives. And in the last couple decades, it has no longer been the case. Uh, you can't just assume people have the same faith as you or that they have faith at all. And so the culture is changing, and that affects us. That affects how we evangelize. It affects how we do outreach. It affects our approach to things. So uh, I, I just I, I say that to... Even some of the older texts in the Bible can find very profound relevance today, I think. So going back to the Israelites, they're not always sure what this means in terms of them being God's people or being told they're God's people. But not having the way of life that they're accustomed to, it really shapes their identity. And so a lot of the, the teachings in Jeremiah revolve around this idea of, of praying to God about this situation uh, but also uh, calling them out of sin. A lot of the prophets, they are, they're lamenting this loss of life or their way of life as they know it, but they're also calling the people back to God to turn back to God and, and turn from their sin and turn to God even in these times of trouble. And so that's an overarching theme really throughout the prophets, and that is the situation that Jeremiah is dropped into. And so I want us to study very briefly uh, from Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, and I'll just begin in verse 4. <clears throat> Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set before you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so there's a lot going on in Jeremiah 1. And he goes on to give a couple different messages, a lot of, uh, a lot of different images, some with different kind of intended audiences. But all this starts with Jeremiah's call. And I want us to think just for a moment tonight about this idea of calling. That's really what kind of led me to this text. Uh, for a long time, when I, when I first got started in ministry at least, I kind of had uh, this work, church work, that I would say I felt called to. But I also had this job over here that put food on the table, that actually paid the bills. And I think in some form or another, all of us experience this tension between the things we'd really like to do or the things we might feel called to do versus the things that uh, really support our financial reality of the world that we live in. And so calling can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. I mean, as Christians, we're called certainly in a way to Christ by the gospel to repent, to be baptized. I think some are called to serve in the church in various capacities as teachers or as preachers, as, as Bible class teachers, deacons, things of that nature. 
Uh, but a lot of people feel called to a particular job, like a vocation, to be, whether it's a trade or to start their own business or just to their work as doctors, nurses, hairdressers, engineers. I mean, it, I think all of us have felt that something that, that really stirs us to say, you know, I can... I think I can really do this and not just sort of do it to make a living, but really do it and do it for a long time, do it well. And I feel like this is, we would say, my calling. But on the other end of the spectrum, I'm willing to bet a lot of us at some point or another have also felt uncalled, felt lost, have felt like, well, am I missing something? You know, am I not doing something? Is something not right with my faith, with my spiritual life? Am I missing something in life? And sometimes I think it can be spiritual, but can also just be in our secular life where you're, you're trying to find that thing that just seems to fit for you. Spiritually, I think it can be just reading the Bible and seeing some of these dramatic stories like Jeremiah, like uh, Samuel's who we studied a few weeks ago. When we see these dramatic stories of people being called, we hear the testimony of certain Christians and we think, well, I don't have anything like that. And so sometimes we can sort of have this almost imposter syndrome in our faith. We're like, well, I don't, if I don't have that, is my faith real? Is it genuine if I don't understand this sense of calling? And so I want to highlight a few things about Jeremiah's call that maybe we can apply to our own lives, even if we don't necessarily hear the voice of God calling out to us from above, from among the clouds. I think there's a couple things we can make application from from this text. The first one is, of course, that Jeremiah heard his calling. Uh, if we think back to the example of Samuel, Samuel did not know God. So when God first calls Samuel, as we read a couple of weeks ago, he calls to him and Samuel gets up. He doesn't know what's going on. He goes to ask for help. He lays back down. God calls him again. He gets back up. He, right? so he, he didn't know God. So when God spoke to him, he didn't know who was there. Jeremiah, if we look in the text, when, when God first speaks to him, his first response in verse 6 is, Ah, Lord God. Jeremiah knows right away who is talking to him. He understands the voice of God when he hears it. He knows who God is. Now, I originally had an illustration here about caller ID, uh, but I don't feel like making myself feel old tonight. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to skip over it. But I think of us as having, sometimes we need caller ID. We need spiritual caller ID. So when God is talking to us, it would help to know that he is talking to us. And Samuel, by contrast, he didn't know what was going on. So how do we get that? Well, um, we'll talk about that in a minute, but we, we have to be able to recognize when God is calling us. That means familiarity with his word at a bare minimum. That means talking to him on somewhat of a regular basis through prayer. But the second thing Jeremiah does in this passage is he understands the call. He, he understands what God is calling to him. It's not that Jesus hears this disembodied voice, but he, he actually understands the message that God is giving him. So he's prepared. He's familiar with God's voice. He knows God's voice when he hears it, but he also understands what this call means for him. And I think when I sort of just think about my own journey and other people's, I think this is really where we most often get mixed up. We say, okay, I, I know certainly God is calling me to something higher than I'm at in my life, right? But I don't know, I don't know how to get from A to B. I, I think maybe God is, is calling me to do more, but I don't really know what that is. I know God is, is, is speaking to me, or at least motivating me, or pushing me to go outside of my comfort zone, but I don't really know where to start. And even though I don't necessarily think God speaks to us the way he does Jeremiah and Samuel, I do believe that he does speak to us. Because there's really two halves in, in Jeremiah's calling, and we don't have time to read the entirety of chapter 1. But he starts through these callings of these different visions. And he shows Jeremiah an almond rod, and he shows him a boiling pot, and he tells him that the, the almond rod is this, and the boiling pot are these nations, and here's how I'm going to lead you. 
But if you're like me and you appreciate a more direct approach, the word of God also has these words for Jeremiah in verse 16. It says, dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything I have commanded you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And it goes on to tell him that he'll be a fortified city, an iron pillar. And, and again, there's a lot of imagery in these books. But I, I appreciate the directness of verse 17. And that's why I say where sometimes I feel like we can be stuck and we don't necessarily understand the call. We don't know what to do. I think there's some very practical advice. And he says, but you dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. If we're stuck with this feeling of uncalledness, it can help to just start by listening. It can start by listening for that word of God, as I talked about, listening both to his word, but also talking back to him in the form of prayer. And then when you find yourself in this period of stuckness where you're like, okay, I, I feel like I'm being called, but I don't understand this call, and what do I do with it? I think there's very practical advice in saying, you know what? Go about the things that you need to do and obey the word of God and await further instructions. And there's a simplicity in God's instructions in verse 17. I also, I skipped over this, but I, I want to highlight that as many of us do, as Moses did before him, Jeremiah, when, when God first calls him, he says, I, I am only a youth. I don't, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. Echoing maybe the words of Moses or the words of those before him who say, well, what am I going to say? I think fear is a natural response when we feel like we are being called by God to do something. As I said earlier, I think a lot of times we, we know we're being pushed out of our comfort zone, but we resist it. Why? Well, because it's outside of our comfort zone. <laughs> by definition, we resist that, that nudging. And so when God, when he says, well, I don't know how to speak for my only a youth, God says, do not say I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. I'm with you to deliver you. Something interesting as you read the prophets and you read some of these figures from the Old Testament, even going back to Abraham and, and Jacob and Isaac and those, there's this repeated line in a lot of these narratives where God says, I am with you, which means if we have faith in him and he abides in us, we know even if we, we feel like we're being dead down a path and we don't know where the path goes or we feel like we're being called but we're not sure what we're called to, there should be somewhat of a confident understanding in that God says, I am with you. I am with you always, as Jesus tells his disciples at the very end of the New Testament. We should have confidence that God abides in us, even when he calls us, even when he calls us to things that we might be afraid of, when he calls us to things that we might not understand. And this starts, as I mentioned, by, by listening, by recognizing the Lord's voice when he calls and so I think some of us, sometimes we are missing that, uh, that divine caller ID, that sometimes the Lord calls us and we don't know who it is. Or sometimes we feel like we're being motivated by something, but we're not really sure if it's from God or we're just maybe going off of our own motivations and our own desires. And when you're hearing sort of these voices, if I can call them that, these motivations in your own mind, maybe you need to take some time to step back and really study God's word. I mean, as the New Testament says, test the spirits, Right? Well, that means you have to be able to identify the good from the bad. You need to be able to recognize God from the cacophony of voices that it can sometimes feel like are, are calling us all these different directions in our lives. And so spiritually, we can see God, we can listen for God, we can pray to God, we can dive into his word and, and put ourselves in the best position to await further instructions for him. But we can also do that practical advice from verse 17. 
of dress yourself for work, arise and say to them everything I have commanded you. Sometimes a calling from God just looks like doing what God asks. It just looks like getting up every day and taking every day, one at a time, to do the best you can do, obeying what God has asked us to do. And then I said there was three things. Jeremiah hears the call, he understands the call, but Jeremiah also answers the call. Because as we see in Jeremiah, there's a lot more to just his calling here in chapter 1 that we don't have time to dive into. But the, the Lord calls him, but not for no reason. He calls him to send him out to be a light to his people, to speak to his people. Because the Lord needs Jeremiah. He needs Jeremiah to, to go out and carry out the mission that he set before him. He, he needs Jeremiah to go to work, to continue to calling other people. But before Jeremiah can go out and give God's message to God's people, Jeremiah first had to go to work himself. He first had to answer the call for himself. And so as we, as we begin to close, I want us to think about our own individual relationships with God if we have one. Because as we know from the, the entire body of Scripture, the Lord is always calling us into a relationship with him. It's a relationship that begins with hearing his word, is fulfilled through baptism in Christ, and is maintained throughout our life until the next one through faithful obedience to him. If you're with us this evening and this call is for you, all right, so as promised, we're going to continue tonight studying about the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we had a couple of questions last time. We talked about kind of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means. And I hope we'll get to that uh, tonight as well and finish up some of those loose ends in terms of what it means to be uh, for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. But I wanted to kind of, uh, well... I don't know if I'd say finish up, dive deeper, talk more about in some form our, our lesson this morning. Uh, because just really for the sake of time, I didn't say quite everything I wanted to say about the, the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in Luke 12. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke 12. And we're going to start here. And uh, I'll start by just uh, unpacking or, or contextualizing all this a little bit more. It's hard to get into a deep, deep textual study in, uh, in the worship setting just because it's, it's really a lot to unpack. But I wanted to maybe, I guess, clarify and make sure my message this morning was clear as we talked about what exactly blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means. And so I want to really start in Luke 11 um, because, as I mentioned this morning, Luke 11, really through the, at least the end of 12, if not 13, is all one discourse for Jesus uh, which is not common in Luke's gospel. Um, if you ever read Matthew, if you ever done a study of Matthew, there's what we call the five discourses in Matthew, where five different times in Matthew, Jesus sits down and talks for pages and pages. And I mean, what we can imagine is probably hours in their time. And we, we, the most famous, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus talks about all these different topics, and he addresses a lot of different things. He addresses anger, he addresses lust, he addresses murder. He talks about, of course, the Beatitudes, you know, there's that reversal of, of fortunes from this life into the next. But in all of these, there's kind of this running theme to the Sermon on the Mount, and that is that you have heard it said, but I say to you. And if you've ever done a study of those, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Well, there's a very similar thing, not so much in that style, but there's a similar thing going on here in Luke where, where there's this one instigating incident in chapter 11, and everything after that really builds from that point in chapter 11. And so uh, our passage that we're going to get to from Luke 12, 8 through 10 is really at the end of this long discourse. And so it would really be bad uh, 
interpretation for me to jump into the conclusion of what Jesus is saying and say, this is what it means, this nice little package. And so I want us to really understand it in the context of all of this, because once, when you can kind of start putting this, this whole section together, it actually, I think it makes a lot of sense, and it's really, really beautifully structured, if that can be said about something like this. So in, in Luke 11, in Luke 11, we, sorry, I'm going to try not to breathe into this and make everybody go deaf. Um, in Luke eleven fourteen, we have Jesus casting out the demon. And I want, I want to put a pin in this because this is actually where the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit occurs. It is in Luke 14 through, I'm sorry, Luke 11, verse 14 through 23. This is the section of action that Jesus is referring back to much later when he says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He's talking about what happens right here. And you know that because... He, he cast, well, I'll go ahead and read this. I, didn't, uh, I don't think I read this in its entirety this morning. I'll go ahead and read this for us, and then we'll uh, look at the highlights of the next few sections. Uh, let's begin in verse 14. Luke 11, verse 14. Now, when he was casting out a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And I want to just pause right there. Um, that's kind of an ancient name for really just a demon. It's a named demon in the Bible. I'm not really sure why some are named and some are not named. There's debates on whether it's just another word for a demon that we translate differently or whether it's a proper noun and demons have names, kind of like some angels have names, Gabriel, Michael, things like that. But what, you, what I want us to take away from that is Jesus has healed this mute man and the Pharisees are saying he is doing this by the work of Satan. In verse 16 goes on to tell us, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And that is really important. That is really important. Keep that, keep that in the back of your mind as we move forward. And Jesus, of course, in verse uh, 17 through 19, he, he has the very famous line, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he really just explains why it's not, it doesn't make sense for him to be casting out demons in the name of demons. And we have the line I read this morning, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. And it says the word if in verse 19 to 20, but he's really kind of using that rhetorically um, because he says, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And so he's asking kind of these rhetorical questions, but he's saying, if, if I'm doing it this way, this doesn't make any sense. If I'm doing it by the, if I'm casting out demons by the power of demons, that doesn't really make any sense. He says, but... If I do this by the power of God, then the kingdom of God is at hand. And we're very familiar with this language. Jesus says this throughout his ministry in the New Testament. We say, oh, of course, the kingdom is at hand. We know that. But I want you to understand that when he says that, that's a very challenging statement to the Pharisees. Because, again, these are the people who are denying the divinity of Christ. They're denying that he's the Messiah. They're denying that he is who he says he is. And so he, he really says you, he's giving them almost a logical – he's painting them into a corner logically. He says, if I'm doing this the way you say I'm doing it, that doesn't make any sense. But if I'm doing it by this way, y'all have some serious truths about yourself you need to examine. And so he's kind of painting them into a corner with this because he wants them to understand what he's saying. So moving down a little bit further, he speaks for a little bit about just the, the danger of the return of the unclean spirit in verse 24 through 26. Um, in verse 27 and 28, he has some very uh, timely words when he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, which is not a coincidence that he's speaking to the Pharisees who, of course, know the word of God, but they don't really keep the word of God. And so it, this all is really fitting together. Um, he has that sign, the quote from the sign of Jonah. And I bring this, brought this up this morning because I think 
Is this too close to my... I need to move this down. It's fucking close. Okay. Sorry, guys. I don't know what to do with that. Um, we've talked about this before, but I think sometimes we can be alive in our time, and we can look back to the times of the apostles, and we can say, man, if Jesus just rose people from the dead like he did back then, so many people would believe. Well, if Jesus just healed somebody, man, so many people would believe. Well, that's what Jesus is doing, and nobody's believing. <laughs> that's what he's doing right in front of their faces, and they're like, no, nah, I don't know about that. That's, that's the work of demons. That's some funny stuff going on over there. And over and over, he does this, and they're like, ah, I don't know about that, Jesus. That's something sketchy going on there. And so that's when I, I think he's almost frustrated at this point. I'm not trying to read into the text or anything like that, but he... He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And if you've been with us on our Sunday morning class, we've talked extensively about how Jonah was in the fish three days and Jesus was in the tomb three days. And there's kind of this parallel and this, this shadow of what was to come, how Jonah was the shadow of Jesus. And the, the big kind of message from this morning was that when Jesus died on the cross, he gave them the biggest sign they possibly could have looked at when he not only died for their sins, but raised himself from the dead. And yet, as we all know, many still doubted him. Even Tom, I mean, Thomas, his own disciple, doubted him and said, Unless I touch his side, I will not believe. Which is why Jesus responds. Do anyone know what he says to Thomas? He does, but he says, You know, you believe because you have seen. But he says, Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And that's really, if you think about it, he's speaking to the rest of us. We are those who believe who haven't said. So anyway, going back to the context of Luke 11, he says all that about the sign of Jonah because he's going back to what he said in verse 16 where it said they, they were testing him to seek a sign. And he says, you know what? I just healed somebody. If this is not enough for you, what is? If this is not convincing you, what do I need to do? And so he goes on. He talks about, of course, the light and the lampstand. And again... Jesus is the light that is on the hill. Like He is the one to whom they should look at and see. He's, he's kind of, this is a hint of what's to come at the church, and we see this interpreted differently later, of course, as us being lights on the hill just as he was. But he's, he's really kind of talking about himself that no one puts a light in a cellar under a basket but on a stand so that those who may enter may see the light. Well, Jesus kind of put himself on a stand in many ways. And he did many, many great works, not just to glorify himself, not just to bring... Uh, honor to himself or not just to show how great he was but really to show how great God was and really to to redeem all of us like all of this is for a great purpose so anyway verse 37 through the rest of the chapter is when Jesus just goes off and, and I don't have time to read all of this but I want to just look at a couple highlights because all of this is still addressing those Pharisees who criticized him when he cast out the demon of the unclean man um, I mean, we'll just pick up in verse 37, and I'll kind, of, I'll kind of skim through this because I'm trying to cover a lot in a short amount of time, and I'm already failing. Um, but verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at a table. Just as a quick note, you'll notice this. While Jesus was speaking, again, this is kind of those, one of those hints that tells us this is all happening in one big chunk of time, one big sitting. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you were full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? 
And so he goes on um, another line from this, this passage, verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. I don't know if you've heard this verse quoted before. But he's saying the Pharisees took tithing so to, to such an extreme that they would literally go home into their spice cabinets. So they didn't just give a tenth of their wealth. They didn't just give a tenth of their crops. They would go home into their spice cabinet and pull out a tenth of all their little spices so that when they showed up to the temple, they could say, Lord, I have given you a tenth of everything I own. Now, I don't have a lot of spice cabinets, but I've had dinner with enough of you guys to know y'all got some spice cabinets. Imagine going through the, you know, and putting teaspoon. He says, you tithe all of this just to show how well you understand the word of God, yet you know nothing about God's justice and God's love. This whole time he's just saying that, man, you, you think you know the law so well, but you are entirely missing the point. Verse 46, and he said, woe to you lawyers also, because then the part I skipped over, a lawyer comes up and, say, and tries to say, well, we're not like these people. And he says, no, woe to you as well. Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. If you think about the role that the priests and the scribes had in the Old Testament, the role of the priests was to help people keep the law. It was to help people be obedient to God. It was to help people ultimately atone for their sins in the small way that they could under the old law system. It was to help them keep themselves clean. And he says, you've taken this role where people are supposed to help keep themselves clean. And what you've done is you've made it impossible for them to keep themselves clean. He said, rather than making it easier on them by helping them carry their burdens, what you've done is you've just made it harder on them. I'm going to say imagine, but I think for many of you, you don't have to imagine. Uh, imagine if all I did is stand up here every Sunday and tell all of you how horribly wrong and sinful all of you are because you don't do enough. Now, I know I do some of that. <laughs> I'd be wrong if I didn't. But, but imagine if never once I showed that I cared about you, if never once I came to, if I, no, if I never called anybody, if we never visited anybody, if all I did was tell you, you're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning, and here's why, and here's why. That's what they were doing. He says, you're not making it easier on people. He says, you're making it harder on people. And don't, and, and don't misunderstand. God's word is hard enough. <laughs> he says, you're, you're making it even harder for them to bear the burdens with them. And he even says, woe to you, verse 47, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Man. He says, your fathers killed the prophets and you build the tombs to put them in. The prophets, the heroes of the old law, the good guys. <laughs> All of this ties back to what he has said or to the actions that took place in verse 19 through 23. It even tells us that kind of in conclusion for that section in verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. And so we really, Luke is narrating this for us, and he really wants us to understand that these people are, their heart is not in the right place. It's not as if they're saying all this because they want to know Jesus better. They're not sitting here saying, Jesus, well, why did you do that? Please tell me in all your great wisdom why this happened. No, they're trying to catch him in something. They're trying to trick him. They're, trying to, they're already plotting against him. And in fact, he, he's now amassing such a crowd by his yelling at the Pharisees that it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. I mean, he's, he's attracting quite a crowd at this point. He began to say to his disciples, what's he going to talk about? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This is where I think the chapters can kind of do us a disservice because chapter 12 just started 
But if he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, he's talking about all that stuff he's still just been talking about. It's everything he's been saying. This is still one big, long teaching. And so he keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And he has this section that seems out of place, but again, I want you to think about this in the context of what's going to happen to Jesus. Uh, Verse 4, chapter 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he was killed, has authority to cast into hell. Verse 4. I want you to think about verse 4 in light of everything we've been talking about. Who is it that we often think of as bearing the responsibility for killing Jesus? Who is it that takes him to the to, to fourth Pilate and says, crucify him? It's the Jews. It's the Pharisees. It's the scribes. It's the Sanhedrin. It's these same people. And as the crowds are gathered, he's over here ranting at the Pharisees because they've told him that he's casting out, again, no small allegation. He's saying, you're not casting out things by the power of God. You're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. And that's when Jesus, I mean, we think of money changers in the temple as being when Jesus cracks the whip. But I'd say here he goes on quite a rant at these people. And when he's been, rant, he's been talking about this so passionately for so long that the, everyone is stopping to look. He begins to say to his disciples first, beware of their leaven. And again, talking to disciples, he says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. Because <laughs> what's going to happen? They're going to kill his body. These are the same people who are going to take Jesus, who are going to weep him or whip him, who are going to scourge him or are going to crucify him. And Jesus is trying to make sure his disciples know, no, 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 don't fear those guys. They're going to threaten you with your life. They're going to persecute you. They're going to scourge you. They're going to crucify you just like they tried to crucify me. But you know what? Don't fear these guys. Fear the one who has the authority to cast your soul into hell. I mean, is that some foreshadowing or what? I mean, just, just picture this. The Pharisees are railing him. They're trying to corner him. They're trying to capture him. They're trying to trick him. And he pulls his disciples and he says, do not fear those, sorry, Jeff, <laughs> who, kill, who can kill the body. He's, he, this, he's, still, he's still on this thing. He's still talking about this stuff that's going on. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so now we get to the passage that we talked about. I don't know if I put this in plain enough terms this morning, but when Jesus refers to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he's referring to all the way back to what happened in verses 19 through 24, really specifically, where does he say it at? Verse 15. Verse 15 he's referring to 11:15, where some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he says, do not look at the power of the Holy Spirit who's in me. Because, of course, we know when Jesus was baptized, just like all of us are, he was the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. He was indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about indwelling of the Holy Spirit next week. But he says, don't look at the work of the Spirit in your life and call that Satan. That is blasphemy of the highest order. And what makes that unforgivable is it's not that it's, it's so slanderous and blasphemous, even though it is, it's not that it's so blasphemous that God is going to say, that's too many sins, I'm not forgiving you. But if you think about what's actually going on in their minds, it's the decision, when given the opportunity, rather than step into a saving relationship with Christ, it's the decision to say, you know what, that's not for me. And if I could paraphrase 
very loosely, verses 8 through 10, he would say, if you are in a correct relationship with me, you can make a lot of mistakes in your life. And you will. You'll make a lot of bad decisions, and that's just fine. But if you make the decision to reject the Spirit when the Spirit is trying to call you into a relationship with God, that's not a decision I can forgive. And all of us in here, all of us who are Christians who have made the decision to, to be Christians, can think of a time in our lives where we were studying with somebody, maybe we heard a really good lesson, maybe we were at a youth camp. I don't know what your particular situation was, but all of us remember a time where we felt so moved by what was going on that we said, you know what, I think this applies to me. I think I need to do something here. And we read over and over um, how the, the role of the Holy Spirit, I referenced this this morning, but the role of the Holy Spirit is in John 16. It's that it convicts the wicked and it guides you into all truth. If you can remember that moment, that whatever it was for you that caused you to be baptized, he says that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And if you ignore that, that is not a mistake that God can forgive. And so if we think of salvation as uh, stemming from a single decision, and I, and I understand that for most of us it's, it's a series of, it's a lot of things. And I talk about salvation as a process all the time, don't get me wrong. But it started, it's, that process started because somewhere along the line we heard a teaching or we were in a study with somebody that we said, you know what, I need to do something about this. I'm not, I'm not a good standing with God. And it's why I tell people all the time, and it's why somebody told me that said, if you want to baptize somebody... Don't just want to grab them and put, you know, say, do you believe in Jesus? You know, dunk him in the water. But he said, study the word with somebody. He said, if you study the word with somebody, the spirit will convict them. And I've seen this happen, but I've also seen the opposite happen. I've also seen the study with somebody, and I've also seen us get to a good point, And then I've seen them put up a wall and say, mm, I don't know. And I'm not talking about doubt. But maybe they were raised in a different background. Or they have a kind of a different faith. And I've seen, just as I've seen the light go off and go green, I've seen the light go off where someone does exactly what the Pharisees did. And they say, yeah, I, just, I just don't know about all that. And what God is trying to tell us is he says, if you make a decision to be in a saving relationship with me, I can overlook a lot of stuff. I mean, anybody in here who is, has, or has been married says, look, as long as we got X, Y, or Z, I can overlook a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> I can do the dishes. I can wash all the sheets. And God is saying, if you choose to put your faith in me and recognize my spirit when it is calling you, I can overlook a lot of stuff. But if you not only ignore what I am calling you, but you have the audacity to blaspheme me when the spirit is trying to move in your life, what else do you expect me to do? It's unfortunately, it's the consequence of free will. That God looks at us and he says, I want you to choose to love me. But if you don't choose to love me, I can't help you. And so, hopefully now you understand why I, I really encourage people to come to these kind of stuff. Because this is, I'd have been up here for like three days if I tried to do that on one Sunday morning. <laughs> so... I know we don't have a ton of time left. We got started at like 10 after, so I'm going to run until 5, 10 after. Um, questions about all of that. Do we at least under, do we understand what the, whole, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is now? Do we understand it more than we did yesterday? Well, you made a good point this morning in your lesson that uh, 
against the Holy Spirit. Right. And I think to try to make it as simple as possible, what is you know the blasphemy, and do we is the Holy Spirit around today so that we could blaspheme against it, but not know it? You know what I'm talking about? I'm gonna. I'll say no. You can't do it and not know it because. Um, I was hoping to get to some of this as well tonight too, but I, w- I was promised this. Next week, um, we'll look at like John 6. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 5, Romans 8. We'll probably spend most of our time in John 6 and Romans 8 um, if I don't preach on this, talking about, uh, talking about how the Spirit dwells in us today. Uh, because, yes, if, if we are baptized, and just for some quick reference, Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit. Um, the Spirit, Galatians 4.6, the Spirit is sent into our hearts. And, of course, Galatians 5, he tells us the fruit of the Spirit, which means the Spirit is in us bearing fruit. Um, but, but what I, John 6 has a lot of good stuff about the Spirit because he said it convicts the world and it guides us into all truth. And, of course, from a biblical standpoint, we understand that there's a level of inspiration that came from the disciples and that we I believe the Spirit guided them into all truth in that specific sense, just in the same way that when the Spirit came on the disciples at Pentecost, they had the ability to do things that I could not do. But the Spirit absolutely still dwells in us, and we see that because there are plenty of other verses that are not just talking to the disciples where he says, if you are a Christian, the Spirit dwells in you. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, but... Well, you said, how can you, can you blaspheme it and not know it, is what you asked. Yeah, in some sense... Uh... Yes, and that's why I would say you can't do it and not know it. I think there's a lot of sins you can commit unknowingly, but I would say this is not one of them because um, blasphemy is like an active rejection, you know. And uh, I almost hate that we kept this word blasphemy from the Greek. It's just a transliteration because one of the points he wants you to get when he says, uh, when Mark says you can blaspheme each other, he says it's not just the slandering that's wrong, but he said specifically when you slander the Holy Spirit, when you speak against the Spirit, when I've sent it to convict you. And that, that's why I say it's, it's not in the text, and this is where I throw up that flag that says this is just Terrence's opinion on the text, because it's not in there. But if we look at how the Pharisees act in the Gospels, I think they knew. I think they knew better than to say what they were saying. Because I don't know how you could know all that you know about the Word of God and not. But what I think they did, and we see this play out in Acts as well, is they said, you know what? I think this guy is who he says he is, but I kind of like the life I'm living. (laughs) I kind of like the life where I have my status and my religious and my social status built on being the officer of such and such temple and being all this and that. And if I believe Jesus is tearing all that down, well, then I lose all that. And I lose all these things that I stand for. And so I think there's a... And, and I, I don't know. You get into a theological rabbit hole whether they believed or not believed. But I think they were convicted because that's what happens when we preach with the Spirit and we preach the, God's Word, especially if it's Jesus. I believe they were convicted, but they, they chose to ignore it. They said, you know what? Mm, I don't think I, I, I don't think I want to I don't want to commit to what you're saying. Here's what I, True. With the people and with, you know, they got demons. Yes. We had somebody there today, well, we're going to bring 
bring the demons out of this person, what's your first thought? That it's a fake TV? Yeah. Well, my first thought would be, okay, I'm going to wait to see if they ask me for money, because they will. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I, I regret that when I started this last week and last night, we talked about spiritual gifts and the gift in Acts 2 and all that. I regret that I did not preface it with an entire separate lesson dedicated to biblical teaching on spiritual gifts. Um, we tried to kind of cover it last week, and we didn't do so exhaustively, but we'll, uh, we'll get to that at some point. Um, but j- just in terms of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit... Um, I don't have time to answer the questions, but is there any more questions? Because I'll write them down and I'll try to keep going. So like I said, we'll take a few weeks on this if we need to. Yeah. Yeah, the body, spirit, and soul. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a whole different study. <laughs> It's not just something like taking his name in vain or something like that, but it's actually a rejection of the the the, the soul level calling that he is trying to bring to us. Yeah. So any any other final questions on blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Hopefully that makes sense. Um, like I said, I tried to condense about an hour and a half of information into like a twenty minute sermon and a thirty minute class, but yes. Hmm. I'm going to, I guess I'll be, I'll be careful saying this because it's, it's the, it's, sometimes it's one decision, right? Like sometimes it's one point in your life and it's never considered again. Sometimes it's a series of decisions, but it is the active choice to not, like, I mean, yeah, if, if somebody says, you know what, I just don't want to believe that, I, I don't want to acknowledge it, then I would say, yeah, that is. And, and it's not a one-time thing. Like if you've ever said that in your life, you've sinned in a way that can't be forgiven. That's not what he's saying. Um, and that's why I said I don't think you can do it accidentally. It's not like using the Lord's name in vain or swearing where you just do it once and like, oh, I'm lost forever. Um, it's the conscious decision to reject it in a permanent sense. Does that make sense? So if I just say one time, I got some doubts about this, I'm not going to hell. That's not what that means. But if you're trying to study with somebody and you get to an end of it and you say, this is what God's word calls us to do. And they go, you know what? I just don't know if I believe that. And if they don't change in their life, the unfortunate reality is, yes, that person will be lost because of that decision not to become obedient to the gospel. Does that make sense? Does that kind of answer your question at least? It's a hard thing to put in simple terms because it's not a simple thing. Um, and it's, uh, as I was thinking about this, it's because it's the inverse of how we always think of salvation. Off, most of Scripture says, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will be saved. And what he's kind of saying now, he says, if you do this, you will not be saved. And so it's kind of different how we normally think about it, but... 
Um, if you have questions, put them in the box. Text me, email me, write me a letter. Uh, come by and talk to me, uh, and we'll talk about it some more. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and close this in a word of prayer after Van. Okay. Uh, one quick observation. Yeah. So we have God, we have God the Father, we have uh, God the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. Man rejected God in the garden, rebelled against him, fell from grace. God sends his Son to die for us so that we may know a home in his, uh, with God in heaven because we've been redeemed by the blood because he was his perfect sacrifice. When he's saying blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the last chance man has. <laughs> That's a good way to think about it. Because if you reject, if you reject the Holy Spirit, one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is to deliver the word of God. Right. And so if you reject the primary work, if you reject the Holy Spirit, then yet there is, you know Consequences. There is consequences. Yeah. And so you cannot be saved by a faith that you revile against. Right. Yeah. And, and when I say faith, I mean system of faith. So, yep. that's all. No. no, you're good. Well, I'll go ahead and close this in a word of prayer. Like I said, if you have further questions, don't hesitate to ask them or bring them to me. But we'll talk about it a later time. Let's go ahead and pray.